Might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabres podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm here with my co-host. He is currently on the run from an assassin named Rook. It's... Hey, it's Devor. I don't know if you should be giving that information out. Rook can smell you. <laughs> uh, guys, we are going to be uh, talking about Rebel Season 4 tonight, and Drew is off in the back to tank getting some recovery uh, with the life and everything going on. He just was not able to make it tonight, which so we wish him nothing but the best, and uh, we'll have him back on when we start talking about Ahsoka because this is our last episode before we talk Ahsoka, before Ahsoka's premiere. And it's almost here. I'm a little excited. I'm a little excited. Um, so... Devor, we've talked about, we're going to be talking about the fourth season of Rebels tonight. And I thought about, oh, well, you know, we haven't done Star Wars in a while, and, and we'll, we'll get back to that. But I know I've talked with Drew about this when him and I first did our Re- uh, Rebels retrospective. I want to know the order that you rank the Rebel season in, from, from least to greatest. How would you order these seasons? All right, least to greatest. Least to greatest. So we, we end uh, with the good stuff. Yeah, I would say I would probably go one, two, four, three. Mm. So one is your least. Interesting. Yes. But I think it's still good. And I think it gets much more hate than it really deserves. Because a lot of times what you'll see people on Twitter, they'll be like, oh, Rebels is great, except for the first season. And I think, no, season one is good. Season one it's just is that, really good. It, it's just that two, three, and four, particularly three and four afterwards, you know, go stratospheric and the show becomes amazing. But season one is good. Yeah, see, okay, so I've been thinking about this and I'm kind of in between, like, where do I put season one and season three? Because my, my best are definitely season two and season four. And, and if I'm being completely honest with myself, season four wins out just because so much weight in season two is put on Twilight of the Apprentice. Like for me, that carries so much of the bag. Uh, And season four, I think is a little more well-rounded of a season. Um, So I think I'm going to go three, one, two, four. Okay. Just because like I watched season three and we talked about this a little bit last time. Like I, I always forget how much I enjoy it, but the episodes that really stand out to me, are in in season two and season four, so I am really really excited to uh, to talk about it tonight and and get ready for Ahsoka. So with Ahsoka coming up, you know we've talked about this. We've been looking forward to everything. What's like the thing you are most looking forward to when you sit down? At would you watch it in the mornings? Are you are you are you a morning yeah watcher? generally yeah, I so yeah I am all right. So when you sit down on that Wednesday morning. The 23rd of August, the year of our Lord C-3PO. What are you most excited about? Oh, that's a good question. I think there's so much. I think right now, 
like when I think about particularly seeing some of the different promotional stuff that they put out, whether it's, you know, the kind the main trailers or even just the little teaser ones that they've been doing, kind of building up. I mean, I'm, of course, excited to see, you know, Ahsoka and the Ghost Crew and all those. But I really do want to know what's going on with, you know, Balin and company. Like, who are these two? Like, they're just they're really interesting. I, just, I wouldn't want to know more about them. Yeah, it, it's 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 the new it's the new people that are really grabbing me. I'm like, what's their deal? Well, and it, and it's such a odd time period for them to be around. Yeah, know? like they're they don't seem to be inquisitors. Balin appears to be a former Jedi. Uh, at least had some kind of um, relationship with Anakin Skywalker. He knew of Ahsoka. So why is he training somebody in the dark side? They're not inquisitors, but there is an inquisitor around. So there's a lot of questions around that that I'm really interested into. I think I'm just most looking forward to seeing where Ahsoka is at when she starts this story. Because I think that's going to set up like both internally and externally the journey that she goes on. Because if we mm-hmm. look back, you know, at her her first live action appearance in in The Jedi and Mandalorian, she is, you know, taking down Morgan Elsbeth's troops and all of that. And it's really clear that she was out there doing Jedi things, even though she doesn't consider herself, as far as we know, to be a Jedi. And so over the, the limited amount of uh, live action we have with her, we have seen her kind of transition more towards being a Jedi. She's interacted with Grogu. She's interacted with Luke. And I don't know if she's going to be a Jedi when we pick up the story or if that this like what the journey is going to be about. But I think the setup is going to be, I mean, the setup's important in any show, but there's so many different places they could put her at mentally and emotionally when we start the story. And I don't feel like the trailers have given us a very good uh, preview of what that's going to be. Like we know right. what her overarching mission is going to be, you know, we, we, we kind of have an idea of, at least as much as we can at this point in time, you know, what the plot of the show is going to be. But I mean, for me, especially with Ahsoka, it's, it's so much more about that internal um, journey for her more than it is the external that I've always connected with. So, I mean, this, to me, this is going to be Dave Filoni's coup de gras. Like this is going to be him just completely showing off. And uh, I'm really, really excited. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to wait long now. It's almost here, like we said. 12 days at the time of recording, in <laughs> case anybody is keeping track. So by the time this comes out, I think we'll be in single digits. Single freaking digits. And yep. I've got to start school and stuff and somehow stay focused on real life. But here we are. But we are not talking about real life. We are talking about Star Wars, and we are talking about Rebel Season 4. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will jump into Rebel Season 4 and three things we think are going to connect with Ahsoka. Something's coming. Something dark. I sense it. This is a new beginning. For some, For others, power.
been a while. Things have changed. I started hearing whispers about Thrawn's return as heir to the Empire. Prepare for the worst. The Jedi fell a long time ago. There aren't many left. Perhaps it is time to begin again. Welcome back, everyone, and it is time to look at Rebel Season 4, trying to figure out what Ahsoka is going to look like. And for those of you who have not checked out our first three episodes covering uh, Seasons 1 through 3, make sure you go check those out. They were a lot of fun. Uh, And so to do this, to do our three things, we just, like it sounds, choose three things, whether they're big or small, from the season that we think are going to be Uh, themes, ideas, characters, whatever it may be that will make an appearance in the Ahsoka series. And these are not in any particular order. This is not a ranking. This is just a uh, speculation, uh, if you will. And so with that in mind, Devor, take it away. What do you got on your list? All right. Well, first things first to set everything up. Believe me, uh, believe it or not, this season was the hardest one for me to come up with lists for. Okay. Good. Me too. <laughs> okay. Because like, you can't use the end because like that's duh. You know, you want to make interesting podcasting. So it's not like, you know, oh, Ahsoka and Sabine are going to go on this mission and they're going to find Ezra. Like, no, duh. So it's hard it, to goldmine this. Exactly. Because, you know, for, for all the seasons we've gone up here, you know, we've had the sort of implicit criteria. You've brought it up of like, well, we're not going to pick obvious things like, that. oh, Chopper's here, so he's going to show up. But then like with season four, it's like when you strip all that out, it's like, what, you're like the, the TIE Defender? Like, what do you, you know, what are you, <laughs> what's left to pick? Like, there's so much heady stuff in season four that it, it's really a challenge to say like, well, what is like, what's not the low hanging fruit? So, yeah, compared to the other seasons, this one is very hard to do. But still, I think I've come up with at least some kind of semi-interesting, not too obvious things. So, the first one that I want to talk about comes from the season opener. So, it's basically that two-parter where we're on Mandalore. And really has to do with Sabine and the clan Wren. And... I don't know to what extent the show will dwell on it, but I'm thinking that at least to some degree they will touch on the fate of Sabine's family because after all, we get to the end of Mando season three where they're all unifying to build. And as far as we can tell, there ain't no Wrens there. So I think, yeah, we've had this already, you know, we've had this whole setup about what happens after Rebels and the Night of a Thousand Tears and all the Mandos having to go underground. So it's like, yeah, it's a question like what happened to, we know where Sabine has been on this whole time because she's been on this mission to protect Lothal. But like, what about Ursa? What about Tristan? I'm blanking on her father's name. But like all of them, what happened to them? Yeah, that's interesting because 
uh, I think it was Rosario Dawson uh, came out and said that at least Ahsoka starts uh, during the time of Rebels, or excuse me, uh, Mandalorian season three. So all that stuff with the reunification and the dark sabers going on, and I mean Sabine held the dark saber for a while. Like we talked about it last time, like she was the owner of the dark saber for a short time, and the philosophy around you know uh, Bo-Katan's taking of the dark saber instead of winning it in combat from Sabine, like it it takes two to tango. So Sabine was a part of that. Uh, bastardization of their their history if you will um at least from from their point of view so how does she fit into the mandalorian culture at this time does she you know if if being mandalorian is a creed and not a a race then does she still identify as mandalorian you know has she been away so long that she's disconnected from that culture uh could be a really interesting thing to to consider and yeah, I mean, you do have to ask yourself, where are they? Like, we already kind of wonder where were the Mandalorians during the original trilogy, you know, because we there's so many of them that are still alive, and, and you would think that they would be playing a factor, but the Empire took them out so completely that apparently it, it stopped, you know, kind of broke their spirits. And so if it's breaking the spirits of the common man, like, does that mean it came from the top? Is it a trickle down kind of situation where the Wrens and leader of these clans really just felt so defeated if they survived at all, uh, that it kind of broke the culture. So that's, I, I was thinking about, you know, how, how could the Mandalorians fit into this? And I didn't really consider their, the, the family aspect of it because we're going to have so much stuff packed in here. If they do bring in their family like how do you think that they would do it like if you were writing the the show you know just storyboarding it where would you fit them into to the story yeah i don't know that even if we if they're if they're necessarily alive that we're necessarily going to see them i i think they would probably instead just be kind of alluded to that we would Mm. get some allusion to or reference to the night of the thousand tears and all that because you were just sort of talking about all that stuff like i was thinking i was trying to think recently about like trying to line up the rebels timeline with the mando timeline and trying to think about like well presumably you know if we end this little mando arc at the beginning of season four with you know, the Empire defeated on Mandalore and Bo taking the Darksaber and reclaiming her mantle, then you have to think that, you know, the Empire's retribution and the Night of a Thousand Tears comes not much after that. So, like, maybe around or very shortly after the liberation of Lothal? Yeah, maybe? that would make sense. Like, you presume, you one would think the Empire wouldn't wait that long. So... Yeah, presumably Sabine finds out about what's happened and yet still remains, you know, on duty in Lothal. I mean, one would think at least at a minimum that she's not cut off from the news. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, it's just really interesting to think of, like, what is her relationship to the events that we know have unfolded from having watched The Mandalorian? And I wonder if she has any... uh kind of negative feelings or, or trauma over the 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 dark saber and passing the dark saber you know to Bo-Katan and and how that kind of 
shattered the culture and whether she kind of blames herself to some extent for the night of a thousand tears like she didn't follow the the creed or you know the the culture uh in the way that she should have and that caused a, a weakening of the the unity of the mandalorians which is part of you know what the empire was able to take advantage of in order to enact the the night of a thousand tears and send them into hiding and I wonder also where Sabine's training with Ahsoka fits into the timeline. I think that's the thing I'm most fascinated by. It's like, how does this timeline line up? Because does she train with Ahsoka because of what happens to Mandalore? You know, is that a motivating factor of her going, all right, I, I, I've made mistakes in the past. You know, she, she made the, uh, the Duchess, the, the weapon that could break Mandalorian armor. You know, she's like, I've done it twice already, you know, with the dark saber and then the Duchess, I've, I've hurt my, my people and now I need to be the one to defend it. And maybe in some way she thinks that's what, what she was training for. So it could be really interesting, uh, to see. I, I think a reference to them, you know, like maybe we've all lost people. I've lost two families or something like that. Yeah. Is very, very plausible. Uh, so you made me feel really bad about one that's on my list already because <laughs> I chose the Tie Defender. Okay, all right, that's cool. Um, do I, I want? I'm I'm all ears. Well, here's the thing: this was Thrawn's like pet project that basically got defunded because of the Death Star and the Rebels' victory on Lothal, right? So to me, it would make sense for Thrawn to still believe in this project. And he doesn't do anything without a real belief in his conclusions. So he's not going to give up on the TIE Defenders very easily, you know. And, and I think he could be of the mentality that if the Empire had had the TIE Defender instead of the Death Star, that the Empire would have remained. It would have won the war. And so he, being the heir to the Empire is like, okay, I'm going to correct the mistakes of the past. You know, we've we've seen those kind of ideas in the sequel trilogy of, you know, I will finish what you started. The the First Order, you know, in, in books, uh, it talks about the First Order believing that they could, you know, do right where the Empire did wrong. Maybe that starts with Thrawn. Maybe that becomes part of the culture through this TIE Defender project. And uh, just... With the technology that they have now and knowing how the Mandalorian went back to to kind of old school uh, with regards to how they shot ships and stuff, I think it would make a lot of sense to have the TIE Defender in here and to to have it be this big threat, another barrier uh, of, of for Thrawn coming back into the galaxy, you know, to, to push the Rebels back and... <sighs> It was pretty clear, you know, uh, if there were more TIE Defenders with their ship, oh, excuse me, with their shields and hyperdrives and everything, it was pretty clear the X-Wings and the Y-Wings and things that the, the New Republic is still using were not going to be a match. So a lot of, I mean, nerds like us think practically of like, well, where did the money come from? You know, where the story just asks, like, what does the story need? But... It could be, you know, that Thrawn, you know, uses the Chiss Ascendancy to build this, you know, new empire, and the TIE Defender becomes kind of the base of that. And they funded that, and this really puts the, the New Republic on their heels, because you have to have something new 
that makes them a threat other than just Thrawn. Like Thrawn is going to be the big threat. Like he's going to be leading everything, but you can't just have Thrawn and a bunch of stormtroopers and then just be like, well, that's it. You know, it's it. If we're going to be starting, which I think part of what Ahsoka is doing is starting this in between war in between the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy, you have to have a force to be reckoned with. And so I think if you bring in the tie defender, it makes sense with Thrawn, you know, seeing two Death Stars failed, like, I'm going to do this the right way. And then we see Thrawn fail. And so the First Order takes the message of, well, Thrawn was wrong too. So we're going to go even bigger and badder and, you know, with Starkiller base, where it kind of becomes this cyclical thing of this empire into the First Order and, and, and everything just becomes this circle of, of, of self destruction by trying to base everything they have off of these weapons. All right. I, I like that last episode. You made the prediction of live-action Bendu. This one, you're making the prediction of live-action TIE Defender. I mean, I would love to see the TIE Defender in live-action. It's a pretty cool ship. I am going all out, man. And all could right. you imagine the toy sales? The toy sales yes. would be insane. Yes. A detachable wings and everything like that. Yep. That'd be pretty dope. So, all right. What else you got, my friend? All right, let's see. So my my second pick is it's actually going to the finale, but not you know any of the things that we've you know alluded to, which is like the last scene or anything like that. But it is the conversation that Ezra and Thrawn have when they're on the Chimera, and one of the things that we you know gather from Thrawn at the very end there is that thrawn does not have much of an appreciation of or understanding of the force you know it, it is something with which they with which he is sort of not familiar in terms of wielding it on its power and he very clearly underestimates it as we see you know in his ultimate defeat when ezra is able to summon the pergil and so i think that is going to be relevant because i think potentially when we see thrawn back in ahsoka and you know him stewing in and kind of meditating on his defeat over Lothal by Ezra, perhaps he has gained a greater appreciation or recognition of the power of the force and its role, you know, in terms of, you know, the grand, you know, battlefield calculus. So, yeah, I would point to that. I think that's a really interesting idea because we know Thrawn has had interactions with force users throughout his life, right? So it's not like he doesn't believe in the force because in the Ascendancy trilogy, they have characters that are, are called Skywalkers and they basically navigate the, the Chiss ships using the force. Uh, so, and then we have, you know, him having interactions with Anakin and then later Vader so we know, you know, it's not a Han Solo situation where he's denying that the Force exists. It's, yeah. you know, like you said, he doesn't really bring it into the calculus of of the uh, the battlefield, you know. And so maybe he's spent all this time studying, you know, the ways of the Force. Like, that would be really interesting if his kind of hiatus was him not only building up his forces to to come back and uh, maybe he intended it to be to help you know Palpatine in the Empire win maybe it, it was him planning on taking over all the time you know that motivation can 
be figured out in the story. But if he spent time going, man, these Jedi really just kind of kicked my ass. I have to study them the way that I study all my other opponents. And you go to, you know, Thrawn having studied old Jedi texts and stuff like that would be so freaking cool. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, and, and we've already been introduced to the notion of there are Force users who are you know on the hunt and looking for Thrawn. So mm. like that link, like will you know, uh, assuming that you know their paths ultimately cross, like with you know with Balin and stuff, like if he actually ends up finding Thrawn, like might he recognize their value in his alliance in a way that perhaps in the past, like Rebels era Thrawn, may not have had a full appreciation for that. And also, I'll be interested to see if this does come to pass, if he is able to distinguish between, you know, the light and dark of the Force. Because part of, you know, an idea, rather, that we see throughout Rebels is Kanan and Ezra and and the Ghost Crew always getting out of tight situations. And it that happens in Star Wars a lot, but within Rebels, they even start to reference it. We have, within Rebels that one Imperial commander who starts to, or who arrests Ezra, and then he gets told by Callus like, lock this guy up, he's going to escape. He's like, it's just a yes. kid. And then he escapes. And then you have a reference when Callus and Thrawn are, are fighting. It's either when they're fighting or when uh, Thrawn just has him prisoners making him watch the battle, where Callus references how you know, the ghost crew always got away from him. Like they always have something up their sleeve kind of thing. So is Thrawn able to realize that that is the light side of the force? Because the dark side of the force, while it can do great, like powerful things, it doesn't, it's not built on hope. It's not built on optimism. It's not built on compassion and love. And so it doesn't find that extra way. The dark side of the force tries to, to bully its own way instead of finding, you know, like we talk about with Luke, finding the third way. So in this, you know, however many years it's been since he's been gone, if he has been studying the Force, has he gone that deep into it, or is that going to be kind of an idea uh, that's present in the story? Because we know Dave likes sticking with the basic Star Wars themes of, of light and dark, so maybe it's not just Thrawn getting an appreciation for the Force itself as a, a part of battle tactics but maybe it's um him learning about the distinguishing between the light and the dark and the impact that it has on said battle tactics yeah no you're you're absolutely right yeah i am i'm very curious to see if we have a a more studied enlightened throng on the force in ahsoka i think there's a decent chance that we do you know what I just thought about too is in the Heir to the Empire trilogy, you have Joris Sebioth or however you say it. I don't think anybody really knows how to say that. But Thrawn uses him and his battle meditation in battle. So like it goes back to the core of the character, really. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Well, speaking of the Force, uh, I think we're going to get another Force user that we haven't seen in anything yet, uh, or at least we can surmise that he is a Force user because he is Kanan's son, Jason Sindula. <laughs> so, look, I've been wanting Jason Sindula stories since Rebel Season 4. 
like came he's out. He's got a Lego. He's he got a Lego, Lego. So he's going to be there. It leaked in the Lego. So I'm hoping this is not like an Alphabet Squadron thing where it's like just a reference to him or you see him in the background or something like that. Like I want him in this story. And I think it makes sense to have him in it because the epilogue of Rebels is like essentially the prologue for Ahsoka. And that's where we met Jason. And he can be a motivating factor for Hera that, you know, it's kind of hard to see her having because she's so much about her family, right? And she's lost Kanan. Sabine is staying on Lothal. Ezra is out somewhere. Like, the only person she really has left is Chopper. And then there's Jason, you know? And so I see her being motivated by Jason to not let this war be how he grows up to not want him to to grow up and have to be who she was living through what two now three wars you know i'm I'm kind of gonna go ahead and presume that we're going to get this this in-between war that i talked about so there's that there's also like i mentioned the idea of him being a force sensitive like Okay, if he's a force sensitive, we know Ahsoka's not going to be out here training force sensitives. Balin, Shin, the other Inquisitor, like there's way more Darksiders out there. Uh, I don't think, you know, uh, Hera's going to necessarily think about Luke. Like, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. There's not much of a connection there. So who does she go to for to, to make sure that Jason learns how to handle these powers appropriately? Ezra Bridger. And I think Ezra could come back and train Jason and pass on the lessons that Kanan taught Ezra. Um, because in season three, you know, Ezra talks about how much Kanan taught him about just being a good person, right? So it's not even really about the force. Like the force, I think, could be the thing that connects the two together. But I think it would really be this beautiful thing where, you know, Uncle Ezra kind of gets to become the father figure here. And through him and through the lessons that Kanan taught him that he then passes on to Jason, you, you're able to have a father-son type relationship there. You're able to have a connection, uh, whether they're blatant about it or just us fans get to go, you know, that's really cool, of Kanan and uh, Jason together. Because there is that line in the epilogue where, you know, <laughs> it's kind of just cheeky, but Sabine says, and we all know who his father was. Yes. And it's, it's like... It's honestly kind of sad when you think about it because he's not going to know who his father was. The one mm-hmm. that's not going to know is him. And when you when you have special abilities like that, like the Force, there's things that people who don't have said abilities will just never understand, right? Like, to me, it's kind of like uh, mental health stuff. Like, somebody who doesn't, have the same you know mental health issues as you can empathize with you but they're never fully going to be able able to understand it and and you're not going to feel fully heard until you're able to meet with people who are are like you and learn from mentors who have gone through the struggle that you've you've gone through already and while the force you know is not the the same thing obviously i think it's metaphorically similar and without a a positive male role model in the force there you know who does jason go to well i mean 
Balin or, uh, you know, Shin or the Inquisitor or there's so many wrong paths for him to go down. So I think for Hera, Jason could be a motivating factor of we need to get this done and we need to get this done now Um, because there does seem to be in all the trailers that I've seen a real sense of urgency for Hera. And we know that she's not one to just kind of sit back and wait like a new dawn. She was out there building the rebellion. She was not going to wait for the war to start. She was going to be prepared when it did. And I think the stakes get raised when you bring in, I mean, found family so big in Rebels, but I mean, it's your own flesh and blood. It becomes another level kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love for them to actually do something with Jason. I mean, like, if Dave Filoni can, you know, turn him into a three-dimensional flesh and blood character out of, you know, just a meme who gets dunked on, he mm-hmm. will cement himself as one of the great Star Wars storytellers ever, you know? Because that's all that Jason has been since the epilogue. Yeah, yeah. And if he can actually integrate him into the story. Yes. Because, like, I don't think Dave just casually does anything. Like, I don't think he casually makes characters, let alone characters that are the son of one of the most beloved Jedi of all time. Like, I don't think I've ever met somebody who didn't like Kanan. You know, like, yeah. if you've seen Rebels, you like Kanan. They go hand in hand. So you make his son in a story that's all about families, and then you never do anything with him? Like, that does not seem very plausible to me. It doesn't seem very Dave Filoni to me. Like, we we got an entire expanded universe that we know he was a fan of, that's about the the children of, you know, Luke and Leia and Han. Well, the ghost crew is his Luke, Leia, and Han, you know? Like, that's yeah. who they are, so he, he should tell a story. Do you think... How do you think if we get Jason Rattler? Let me ask you that. If we get Jason, how would you think he gets integrated into the story? Oh, that's that, that's a good question. I know he's still going to be... How old would he be at this point? He'd be like 10, like 9, 10 years old, right? Yeah, we don't so, quite like, know exactly how the epilogue part lines up with... Like, we don't know if those are all happening at the same time. Yeah. Or, so there's some flexibility. Yeah. yeah, but if you, you know, if we imagine that at least, you know, Jason is born around, let's say, like you know, Battle of Yavin time, like zero, like around that time. And this is happening, you know, nine years after. And he's like nine, ten years old. He's somewhere, somewhere about that at the, at the least. So, like, you know, that puts him well at an age that, like, you know, you could actually make a character out of him. Like, he's basically, you know, Phantom Menace Anakin age. So, like, I think he could be there, you know, possibly as sort of like a tag along to Hera's missions and whatnot in that way and being sort of part of the search. I don't anticipate him being like a main central character. I think he might be there as sort of more in a kind of supporting capacity. And it would be interesting too, thinking about, you know, you have him, you have Ezra, you have Grogu, you know, you're, you have all these, you know, Jedi that are out there. How does it start to integrate with Luke? What role does Ahsoka play in it? How does this affect, you know, what's going to happen with Rey in the new Jedi Order movie? Like, it could be, like, you you brought it up. He's kind of, Jason's kind of been either one of two things, either just a complete, like, meme to get dunked on, or people like me who are like, we need Jason's and Dula stories. (laughs) Um, And so, if you keep building up all these, you know, 
Jedi, whether they're formerly Jedi or not, you know, with Ahsoka, with Grogu, and like everybody I said, you start to question, like, all right, how does this make sense with it being just Rey and Luke later on? And and I don't necessarily think these characters have to die because I don't necessarily think that that's the that's the easy out almost, you know. And, yeah. and Star Wars doesn't do that. It it likes to have its heroes live and so when they die like kanan there's a greater impact on the story so i don't necessarily think the uh, you know all these jedi have to die off or anything like that but they would definitely have some questions to answer um in future storytelling so all right my friend what else you got on your list all right well in some ways what you were just talking about there with jason and sort of related characters does neatly get into one of my or at least my third thing which is sort of the the coming to fruition of the Kanan Ezra relationship that happens in season four, and really just this whole theme of masters and apprentices. So, of course, you know, their relationship as student and teacher goes all the way back to season one, and it goes through the entirety of Rebels. But what we see here at the end is that, you know, of course, Kanan sacrifices himself in order to save the ghost crew in Jedi Knight. And then we see Ezra sort of going through a period of confusion and uncertainty and not sh- not being sure how to move forward without Kanan, but then sort of gaining a sort of clarity and sense of purpose from looking at his example. You know, the, what is, I think it's a world between worlds sort of ends with that beautiful final scene where he talks about how like, like the the one last lesson that Kanan mm-hmm. gave him that he knew what to do. So this whole theme about like masters and apprentices and sort of passing on the lessons to the next generation, I think that was something that is going to come into play because we have already, of course, had it allude to of a at least one time master apprentice relationship in some capacity between Ahsoka and Sabine. So is there something similar where like maybe I'm, I'm not sort of. Uh, you know, the, I, I'm not floating us to the possibility that, like Ahsoka dies in this show or even this season of the show. But th- that whole notion of like passing on what you have learned and, you know, there was that little teaser not that long ago that Star Wars put out about like this whole theme of masters and apprentices and was showing all of these different examples. They're like, you know, your Qui-Gon Obi-Wans, your Obi-Wan Anakins, your Luke Rays. You know, that had that Yoda line about like, you know, we are they are what we, you know. We, you know, what we are what they grow beyond. That's the last Jedi line. We are what they grow beyond. That is a true burden of all masters. That's the line. So like, are we, you know, we get that, of course, with Kanan and Ezra at the end of season four. Might we get something similar like that in the context of Ahsoka where, us, you know, Ahsoka has, you know, you know, she, she of course, is, you know, she's the titular character and she's at the forefront. But perhaps there is a kind of, like, stepping back and allowing this new generation to kind of take the four there. That would make a lot of sense. I mean, she already kind of did that with Grogu. You know, Mando asks her, you know, you didn't train him. Why are you letting Luke train him? And she talks about, you know, he made his own choice. And I think that's part of becoming a master is is learning to let your students make their own choices, even if you disagree with them. And even if you know they're going to fail or know it's not right for them because you have to find this very careful, hard to find balance of letting them fail so they can learn those lessons, but also giving them the support so that they don't fall too far, right? 
that's with Anakin, he didn't have the support that and that allowed him to to fall as he did. Whereas Luke had that support. He had uh, the belief from his masters and from his friends and everything like that. So there's that aspect to consider. Uh, and does, you know, again, this goes back to kind of my what thing I'm most looking forward to. What is Ahsoka's headspace at this time in the story? Because she's gone through a lot and I just was, you know, rereading Ahsoka, uh, the book. And I know there's some like questions to its validity as far as Canon because of tales of the Jedi and other things. But at the end of the book, when she decides to become fulcrum, you know, she talks about, she doesn't want to be on the front lines fighting anymore. She wants to find a new way to to help the rebellion you know she doesn't want to just be a soldier because that's all she's ever been and so is she focused on you know training sabine just to be a warrior or to be something more and to learn how to evolve because that's kind of what what kanan did for ezra you know kanan's training was so limited i actually think that was a benefit to him because he didn't try to overdo the training with Ezra, he kind of, if you, if, you know, looking back at the, the four seasons as a whole, watching this, I noticed, you know, Kanan, a lot of times towards the second half of the series, lets Ezra do his thing. And then he's just there to have his back when he makes the mistake. Like he lets him, uh, you know, go off on in the, the premiere of season three, you know, he goes off without, Kanan, uh, going into the caves by the Bendu, you know, he lets him go on his own, even though he goes after him, you know, he's always there to support him. So there is the aspect of, you know, we are what they grow beyond, but there's also the factor of finding that balance uh, of support, you know, and not just letting them go completely, but kind of having a gradual release system in place for them. And, I mean, Ahsoka didn't really have that. You know, she kind of got thrown in the middle of the Clone Wars and then left the Jedi Order. And and, and it wasn't, you know, she learned quite literally the hard way. And part of a teacher's job is to, to let your students learn the lessons that they need to learn, but also to not make them suffer the way that you did. You know, that goes to the support system. So how does... Ahsoka find that balance with regards to Sabine is going to be a really interesting question. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like, you know, you just brought up, you know, Ahsoka's own background and, you know, without, you know, spoiling too much for folks who may be reading it, I know like, you know, you and I have both read Delilah Dawson's book, Rise of the Red Blade. Oh, and like God, one of so the things, freaking good. like one of the things that that book kind of underscores, again, without getting into too many spoiler things, is like just how out to see a lot of young Jedi knights slash Padawans are during the Clone Wars. That like mm-hmm. a lot of that support system that you're talking about is just not there because of this bigger priority of the war. And Ahsoka, you know, she has the 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 relationships of whether it is she has a direct master in in Anakin and almost like almost a kind of secondary master in Obi-Wan kind of hanging around there too. But still, yeah, there is the fact of, you know, the shadow of the war and the way that that sort of distorts everyone's 
priorities and kind of infects the the master apprentice relationship and so i mean you know she you know she walks away from the order and you know the whole time like one of the things that you see her growing up and, and such and you sort of alluded to this is like is this recurring theme of like you know after she leaves the jedi like she has this thing where like she really does keep all people and all causes at kind of an arm's length yeah it's like she'll work for the rebellion but not on the front lines like i'm just going to be fulcrum you know like i'm not going to be I, i'm not going to be the, a face out there and you know when we get into rebels she's there you know helping kanan ezra and whatnot like with force up she's like but i'm not a jedi like i'm not going to open the temple like you guys got to do that so there's always this like where she's keeping everybody just a couple steps away and so now you know what's been alluded to with sabine is like here is her like potentially allowing someone to get close to her and like what's that bringing up and like how is she going to sort of deal with that, like both internally in her own head, you know, with all the things that she's been through, but then also maybe like try to over, you know, overcome some of that for the sake of, you know, Sabine and helping others. Yeah. And so I guess this is going to be kind of minor spoilers for rise of the red blade. I'm not going to get into specific details. So if you're not like, I don't want to, if you're okay with knowing a little thing that's not going to spoil the book that much, uh, keep listening. But we see a knighting ceremony during the Clone Wars happen very haphazardly. That's all yeah. I'm going to say. Uh, and so this idea of we have our structures and our belief systems until it gets too hard or until there's an emergency and then suddenly those morals no longer matter those traditions no longer matter. It's kind of like uh, Bill Burr's character saying to, to Mando in, in season two of like, you know, is it, you can't take your helmet off or you can't show your face. And like, what about, you know, when, when things get hard, you, you just change your belief system to, to fit whatever you need it to be. That's kind of what happens with the Jedi. So I don't necessarily think Ahsoka is like an anarchist or anything like that, but I don't yeah. think she wants to be a part of any formal ideology because she's seen that fail and she's seen that. And you can look in our own world today. Like everybody's guilty of it to some extent. Like when things get hard, you know, we try to find the easy way and, and sometimes we sacrifice the kind of the person we want to be our own morality or principles in order to get to that end. And I don't know if Ahsoka necessarily did that. Um, you know, we do have huge swaths of time where we don't have stories with her. You know, we still have questions about where she was, you know, during the original trilogy and things like that. But so I don't know if, you know, she's experienced this through her own actions or just through seeing so many things go wrong in the galaxy. But I think she's going to have some apprehension about, about joining any formal uh situation and yeah that's really really interesting kind of goes to to my uh last one which is like the idea around the need and or the desire to fight and this is not mm -hmm. necessarily the same thing 
as you talked about a couple episodes ago of like how we choose to fight, which is a big yeah. theme in Star Wars. But this is about the actual need or want to fight. And I say that because, you know, a, a lot of the end of Rebels is bringing all of these different characters together around Ezra uh, who have been present throughout the whole series to fight to save Lothal. And they all have different purposes, but they all have a purpose. You know, even Hondo says, I would do anything for that boy. You know, like he's fighting for Ezra, not for Lothal. And you have the clones who are fighting because they want to fight for something they believe in instead of just fighting for something they were told to to fight for. And that kind of becomes the factor that the Empire is missing is they're doing it just because they were told to, not because it's something that they believe in. And so at this time in the galaxy, you have the New Republic who is, you know, demilitarizing, that's always hard to say, uh, and is is not really going to want to fight what at the time is going to appear to be kind of a phantom threat, a phantom menace. Uh, in in Thrawn. Sorry, that was just right there. It was too easy. I hate myself. Uh, so yeah, I, I I think we're we're not going to have a formal war declared by the New Republic. So then you've got to think about the Mon Mothma factor. Like, I know she's probably not going to play a huge role in this, but in season four, she was very weary about sending troops to Lothal after losing so many on Adelon. So you got to think about where is Mon Mothma going to be at this time? You know, is she officially chancellor yet? Like we don't know how that uh, necessarily, how that timeline lines up, even though we know she was the leader for a while um, after the war with, you know, everything we get in bloodline. So is she going to be willing to send people to fight? Is she going to want to fight anymore? Because she spent the last two decades fighting or is it going to be a situation where the New Republic, you know, kind of outweights her and outvotes her and she doesn't have a choice um, but to not send people? And so she's got to go behind the scenes and go against the wishes of the New Republic to help Hera. So I think one factor that we could see throughout this uh, series is this ghost crew finding evidence to prove that Thrawn is out there to prove it to the new Republic. And I think Mon Mothma would play a factor in that in, in kind of a similar way that she does to season four of like, I've got to strike this balance of doing what's right and doing what's best for everybody. That's a conversation she has with Ezra there of like, look, like if we, we could help Lothal, but then what about all the other planets? Like we've got to think bigger picture and then the ghost crew liberates Lothal and it's like, all right, so what lesson did Mon Mothma learn from this? You know, like it's going to be really interesting to see. We know, you know, Hera was a formal part of the new Republic and everything. Uh, Sabine, probably not. Ahsoka's somewhere. We don't really know how she fits into um, the galactic picture at that time. And, and we saw in Mando season three, they took, you know, it, literally an entire episode to show us just how badly the New Republic is failing, uh, how it's already being owned by bureaucrats and things. And, and it's basically just the Empire with a smile, more or less, at that point. So there's so many factors there to consider of, like, what's going to motivate 
these characters to fight. And Mon Mothma stands out to me in particular, not because I think she's going to have a huge role to play in the series, but I think she is going to be uh, this fulcrum, no pun intended, uh, this fulcrum of based on what her beliefs are and what she's able to pull off at this time. Like, I doubt she can just say, yeah, we're sending troops without a vote because that would be very much like just her being an emperor, which she's going to be very wary of. Um, But also, is the New Republic going to believe them that Thrawn is out there? You know, it's the trailers to me have made it very clear that like, not everybody knows about Thrawn, you know, whether they even knew of him at all or they just think he's dead or whatever it may be. He's a phantom. He is a ghost out there in the unknown regions, in wild space, wherever he's been. What's going to get these people to find a rallying point? Um, you know, we already talked about it a little bit with Hera and her son, you know, and that motivating factor. And there was another line in in the season that really stood out to me. It was Kanan and Hera talking, and Kanan asks her, when are you going to feel like you've done enough for this rebellion? And then she replies to him, I guess when the Empire is overthrown and people are free to live the lives the way they want again. So does she believe that people are able to live the way they want again if Thrawn is still out there, if that threat is still out there? So what does that you know factor do to her? So I kind of encompassed a lot in that, but all of it, to bring it back around, goes to are these characters going to want to pick up the fight again? Are they going to need to pick up the fight again? Like, what is their relationship with starting and going into another war after they've just gotten out of, for most of them, two back-to-back wars? Uh, It's going to be really interesting to see how that develops because I think you still have to keep the movies as the big things, you know, those are the tent poles. So I don't think you can have this Mandoverse war become bigger than, you know, what we had in the sequel trilogy or the original trilogy, or, I mean, I don't think anything will ever be bigger than the clone wars as far as scale and everything. But, uh, the mindset of these characters, I think is going to play a huge role in how that develops. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, this is a, uh, you know, this is a whole topic of conversation in and of itself, but it's like just Star Star Wars, Star Wars's relationship to the concept of war, because it is interesting that the franchise is on the one hand, I think very clearly it is anti-war. Yes. But it is also not pacifistic either. Yeah. And so it's like, how does it negotiate by on the one hand, like promoting a message about talking about the costs and consequences of fighting while also at the same time affirming and reaffirming the necessary the necessity of fighting in many circumstances. But again, that's like a that's a whole other thing to get into. It's this idea of like, where's the line, you know? Yeah. And, And the reality of it is the line is always moving. You know, yeah. and, and it's not always a straight line, you know, and so that makes it way more complicated, which I mean, I think that's a major factor in why Star Wars has been so successful is like you get to see these different aspects of, you know, like, unfortunately, war is such a part of our human culture. You know, it's one constant that we've had through all of the the 
millenniums or whatever thousands of years that humans have been around like we've always been fighting with each other in one way or another and so uh, whether those are you know small personal wars or big galactic wars like we have to figure out our relationship to it you know especially in america coming off of you know 20 straight years of war um most of us you know have have lived in a time where most of our life was spent in in a war and so whether you fought in that war or you didn't you know like you you have thoughts and opinions on it and i think star wars just so beautifully gives us these different perspectives on it like you talked about um with just you know what it's not a it's not glorifying war but it's also not denying the necessity to stand up against, you know, evil and to to fight for what's right. But that goes, you know, and it just so easily ties into what you talked about before on the past episodes of how we choose to fight. Like, I think those two ideas go together of like when you decide what you need to fight for and what you desire to fight for at the same time, you have to decide how you're going to fight for those things. And that's going to be really interesting to see because we have so many characters that are in such vastly different places in this story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, as you've said, like all of these, like all of these main characters have different relationships and degrees of relationships to various sorts of conflicts, be that the clone wars, the galactic civil war, what's happened on Mandalore and things like that. And yeah, like, what is it like to be staring down the barrel of, cause you know, if you think about it, like if you think about what, what Ahsoka and what is happening in the, in the Mando timeline, you're like in the context of what has happened, it's like, you've had, you know, the galactic civil war and you had Endor and like people are like, okay, well, Endor is like, this is like, this is the end of the war. It's in the empire. Then like a year later you have Jakku. It's like, okay, well, here's the end of the actual war in the empire. And now it's like, you're coming up here, you know, fast forward, what, eight, nine years. Like, okay, well, like here's the end, end, end of the empire. You know what I mean? Like it's, it, it feels like this thing that is constantly, that they have to circle back to. Yeah, it really does. And like, is the sequel trilogy going to be the punctuation on the end of that, you know? And, and if it mm-hmm. is the punctuation on the end of that sentence, like, okay, where does this upcoming war that we're going to have fit into things? You know, it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting. I'm, oh, I'm so excited for Ahsoka. All right. So we've done, you know, you and I have been doing all four seasons. We had Drew on with us before too, but but between you and I, we've now come up with 12 different ideas of things that could be in the Ahsoka series. So now it's time for wild predictions. <laughs> so give me your most ridiculous, outlandish idea, whether it's Rebels related or not, about something we could see in Ahsoka. Okay. Oh man, do you have one? I do. do you want to go, want first? Me to go okay. first? Yeah, go for. Yeah, you go first. All right. I'm saying that we see live action Hot Callus <laughs> and him and Zeb are actually space married. Okay. I like it. I mean, I was going to throw in there and have adopted a child too, but I wanted to, you know, play it safe. All right. All right. I like that. I like that a lot. 
Ah, uh, let's see. Oh, just uh, ridiculousness. Like, ridiculous. don't overthink it. Yeah, uh, Snoke. <laughs> Some connection to him. Oh man, I don't know. Oh my God, Ezra is Snoke. People have been saying it all along. Thrawn is Snoke. That's the one that we haven't had yet. Thrawn is Snoke. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, yes. guys, we are going to be covering the Ahsoka show on the network uh, throughout the entire uh, series and season. So make sure you are subscribed to our channel to be able to get all of that great content plus more. Mark and I are working on a special crossover of uh, Forever Star Wars and Clashing Sabers talking about our trip to Galaxy's Edge. Lindsay and I have book podcasts coming out. Uh, we just recorded Path of Vengeance. We've got the aforementioned Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade coming up. So whatever Star Wars you like, whatever angle you like to take it from, we've got some shows on here for you. So if this is your first time listening, welcome. And if this is your hundredth time listening, also welcome. Uh, we love our community and, and we love our people over on Facebook. So shout out to our great people on our Facebook group. And then uh, that is Star Wars Clashing Savers. And then, of course, you can go over to Threads, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all of those things. We are at Clashing Sabers. And Devor, of course, we have your show, A Larger View of the Force. So tell them about that, what you're working on, and where they can find you. All right, yeah. So you can listen to my my show, A Larger View of the Force. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that at A Larger View Pod. And you can also listen to uh, the Space Swifties, a Star Wars and Taylor Swift podcast that I co-host with my wife, the one and only Meg Dowell. Awesome, awesome. So again, guys, thank you for being a part of the community. Thank you to those of you who have nominated teachers lately. We just got to send uh, almost $500 worth of books to some teachers to start off the school year. So shout out to our patrons there. And uh, okay, actually, before we finish, Devor, I want to amend my, uh, my hot hot take okay okay i'm gonna say we don't just get married to zeb hot callus in live action but married to zeb hot callus in live action is going to be a member of batch eight hi ho you just seem so disappointed in me with that one you're like god damn it i really was hoping he wasn't gonna go there <sighs> no i i i knew you were going to <laughs> No, can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?